Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Real Wealth, Real Health and the first episode of 2021. I hope everyone is looking forward to a new year, new opportunities, and some new energy behind us. On our episode today, we are speaking with Hunter Thompson. Hunter is a full-time real estate investor and founder of ASIM Capital, a private equity firm based out of Los Angeles, California. Since founding ASIM Capital, Hunter has raised over $35 million and directed the purchase of more than $90 million of commercial real estate across a variety of asset classes. He is also the author of Raising Capital for Real Estate, how to attract investors, establish credibility, and fund deals. And Hunter is the host of the Top 200 Investing Podcast on iTunes, Cashflow Connections Real Estate Podcast. In our conversation with Hunter, we talk about the way he thinks about investing today, particularly in this post-COVID environment. We discuss the changes to various commercial real estate sectors that are likely to arrive and the impact that this might have on operations. We also talk about diligence, underwriting, and monitoring, and what it takes to stay on top of investments, why it's important to know what you're getting into when establishing a source of passive income. And finally, we spend some time highlighting the Intelligent Investor Real Estate Conference, a three-day newly virtual investor conference presented by ASIM Capital for investors and by investors. This conference provides exciting educational content and will foster an environment where meaningful, lifelong, professional relationships can be made. It's great to have you. You know, a few weeks ago, we know you had Daniel on on your podcast, which was a which was a great episode. We had a lot of really good feedback, and so you know, it's going to be really fun to have you on ours. I first met you last well, January of 2020, when you were doing your. IREC conference, which is an annual event, which is something that we're going to talk more about because it's a great resource for investors and, and people who are interested in real estate. And I guess these days it's all virtual. So you don't have to be in LA to, you know, come to the conference and, you know, this January, right? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. We're looking yeah. forward to it. So uh, we'll talk yeah. more about it later, but great to get connected again and always enjoy working with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, let's jump in. And, you know, we always like to start with people's stories. Like your stories are rich with like all the meaning and like all the moments and, and like this thread and this narrative that really like creates the person that you are today. And like, you are a preeminent, you're very well known, you're very well respected, uh, real estate investor and you syndicate great deals. And so it's going to be really fun to talk to another syndicator on 
on the show, but you know, like, what's your story? Like, how, like, how did you know you wanted to be in real estate, like to this degree, like doing what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, for one thing, I was just very drawn to the world of entrepreneurship from a very young age, you know, did everything I could to avoid having a formal corporate type of job. And which wasn't hard, by the way, it was, you know, <laughs> I didn't build a resume that would attract a kind of a corporate attention. And, and so because of that, didn't have to work very hard to avoid that type of situation. But, you know, I started a couple companies in high school and college, had a summer where I was a professional poker player. And as I kind of did these interesting, unique ways of making money, which by the way, the stint as a professional poker player is like one of the most important and influential moments in my my life because it taught me that if you focused enough energy and took significant time blocks and got a coach, you can learn really challenging, complicated things on the internet. And so back then as a college student trying to avoid getting a typical summer job, I did all those things during the poker boom, which is like a multi-billion dollar boom in the industry of poker. I got a coach. I took it very, very seriously. And back then, if you did those things, you could make 10, 20, $30,000 a month on a consistent basis. And so uh, that's what I did leading up to 2007. And for anyone that's familiar with the online poker world, right around that time, something really important happened in the industry, which is, is known as Black Monday. And what happened was that the United States government basically banned online poker. And so I had gotten my money out of online poker right before this happened. And it created a situation where I had some capital to invest. And I had a lot of connections in the poker world that basically got their accounts frozen and they didn't have an end in sight. And so some of the first investments passively that I made were the concept of backing professional poker players. And, you know, I think now kind of the, the word of poker I mean, it has a very different meaning, but back then poker was typically done in casinos and such, but the wave of online poker was basically filled with a lot of MBA students, a lot of people who were uh, tech savvy and also kind of geared towards uh, learning, you know, it's, it's basically a very complicated algorithm and assessing things on a risk adjusted basis. So I was able to back a few poker players and then once that opportunity kind of dried up because they made their money and moved on, I was able to, you know, transition to my career as a real estate entrepreneur, which we'll talk about. But it kind of coincided very favorably with the market dynamics because that is so interesting. Yeah. 2008 that, happened shortly after that. Right. Like 2008 for the financial markets. But first you had Black Monday in the online poker world. Which is obviously going to be completely different from, you know, I would imagine because you talked about algorithms. So it's got to be different from like sitting down across from somebody or is it the same kind of like, are you still working and an algorithm of sorts? I mean, it's all it's all it's all numbers and people, right? I'd say that the thing that poker taught me that's just really, really important and uh, poker player Annie Duke wrote a book about this, which is that. Uh, people typically think in binary terms. Uh, people typically think in co cons, pros and cons lists as mm -hmm. opposed to weighing things from a probabilistic outcome perspective. And so if you use a pro and con list, for example, it's hard to give a weight to each of these potential cons or pros. And so you're just list, you're left with the list. So making a assessment on risk adjusted basis, it's very hard to find which is more favorable. 
But there's a concept in poker called pot odds, which allows you to calculate the perspective likelihood of you winning with the perspective likelihood of how much you will win. And just that concept is very, very powerful in terms of investments. And I'll give you kind of a shorthand thing. You know, typically we do not invest in development. And it's very hard if you don't have those skills regarding pot odds to kind of comprehend why we would not. But basically, to make it as simple as possible, I would say that a development typically incurs about twice the risk of a typical investment, let's say a value add type of investment, but it's likely not going to provide twice the return. Now, that's a very sim- a simple, straightforward version of kind of the pot odds concept, but that's why it applies so well to real estate. I was actually going to ask how, how it applies, and that's such a perfect example. We, you know, we also don't do development. It's like, like for us too, like we don't have the expertise in house and, you know, with returns we're able to see with, you know, existing projects with cash flow, it, you know, you kind of weigh those two together and it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but can you tell us, so like, when was that moment? Like you went from, from poker and you got started, but that would have been like, right as things were crashing 2008, 2009. So like, what was that transition like, like during that time, you know, as the world was seemingly falling apart, but it could have also been a really great time to be getting started because if you're there, then you were able to pick up on opportunities as things started to, you know, start to get better. Yeah. So I was very insulated from the 2008 crash you know, because that's not where my money was. I just kind of exited from the poker kind of world. And as a college student, wasn't really investing in the stock market. But when 2008 happened, I was really turned on to the potential blood in the streets type of mentality. And so I took that energy that was originally focused on poker to learn about the financial sector. And like I mentioned, I mean, today this is common practice, but, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, learning complicated things on the internet was just starting to come into fruition. I mean, having a coach that would teach you over the internet, for example, in 2005 or six or seven, that was a relatively new kind of thing, especially with something complicated. So I dedicated that energy and just started doing what most people do, reading Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, just the most well-known people and investing in the stock market because that's what I knew. And when I say that's what I knew, I mean, it was rudimentary understanding, but basically looking at things from a historical basis based on valuations and income and recognizing that it was a favorable time to invest in high quality assets from a historical standard. And so blue chip stocks, you know, just trying to pick companies that I thought were going to succeed out of the great recession and had some success as anyone would back in 2008 doing that kind of strategy, but hit a big wall in 2010. And the 2010 thing was the European debt crisis. And this is something I've talked about before, but I don't think this gets enough attention. I was just so confident that I had some sort of advantage just because I had read a couple of books by some really good thinkers. And then out of nowhere, something wildly unpredictable, unmitigatable, just obscure, where everyone on CNBC is all of a sudden talking about nothing but the grease bond yields. And it was just this moment where I thought, I can't build an infrastructure large enough to predict or mitigate these types of risks. I have to find something that's scalable and replicatable and can be lucrative, but I can identify risks and mitigate them. And that opportunity was not in the stock market, at least not in the broad market. So I was open to anything. Uh, Cash flow focused, potentially recession resistant was my intuition. But real estate, for all the reasons I'm sure you're familiar with, just 
again and again presented itself as a great opportunity. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I remember the, I was living in Europe at the time. So I very much remember the, what was going on in Greece and it just took, it took everybody out. So it's interesting though, because you, you work so hard to be informed and then like do your best. Like you're clearly like very diligent. You're very thorough in your approach and you try to get to the bottom of things so that you can build them up. So it's hard to get sideswiped by, you know, by all of these kinds of things. So let me ask you, did COVID sideswipe you? And I mean, in a way it sideswiped everybody that's, you know, it's not what I mean, but, but, you know, it's, it was also, you know, potentially unpredictable, you know, even though it comes in hundred year cycles with viruses over the last few hundred years, but, you know, how did that, like, you know, having gone through 2010 with the debt crisis and then, you know, COVID 10 years later, like what was the difference in your approach and how you felt in, in the level of confidence or expertise then versus now? Yeah, so I'll kind of explain our big picture thesis and then kind of how it's played out with COVID. So pretty early on, I was very drawn to what's now kind of referred to as the recession-resistant asset classes, mobile home parks, self-storage, et cetera. Initially, it was mostly because the opportunities in single family, which were very popular back then in the wake of the foreclosure crisis, I just didn't see. There's two things that weren't there, the scalability and the very savvy, sophisticated operating partners that I would need to rely on. That's not to say that that doesn't exist in single family. So please don't send me a zillion emails. And by the way, if you are operating successfully in the single family business and you're scalable and you're a savvy operator, you have a tremendous advantage over your competitors. I'm very sympathetic to that. But generally speaking, I want to rely on people that stand to make millions or tens of millions of dollars if they execute. And so that lends itself to much larger purchase prices and larger business models. So, you know, $15 million self-storage properties or a fund of $100 million in mobile home parks, et cetera. And the thesis is simple. I'm willing to give up plenty of the upside that may be associated with more cyclical assets in exchange for the predictability of outcome. So that was the thesis. And if you look at, let's say, same store or same property in a wide growth, the chart Green Street Partners did a report on this where it shows, you know, retail, office, multifamily, self-storage and mobile home parks. Self-storage and mobile home parks are just a slow and steady wins the race type of structure, but the NOI growth is just tremendous. Now, the argument, though, is that NOI growth doesn't paint the whole picture. Valuations are also quite important for determining NOI or ROI. But I don't care so much about the IRR. I want the predictability of outcome. So that was kind of the big picture thesis. When COVID happened, you know, to be honest with you, we sent out communications to our investors that were very bearish. You know, even with that structure where the concept is if everyone starts making 20% less than they're currently making, there's plenty of demand for the mobile home park business in particular. But that's not the whole point. That's not the whole picture. Just like NOI growth is not the whole picture. You know, there's lenders can go under people can have their properties foreclosed on people can move out of a mobile home park and be homeless and we didn't know what was going to happen so we basically sent out communications saying buckle up there may be some serious distress in the opportunity i've been through this before in the wake of 2008 and you know personally it was frightening how could it not be i mean it's completely ahistoric it's difficult to underwrite a government lockdown. That's not in our sensitivity analysis. 
So, you know, I, I can kind of finish the story out, but that my initial reaction was, holy crap, you know, hopefully our investors are, are capitally sound so that they're going to be able to take the advantages of the valuation change that's about to happen. Now, we haven't seen that, but that was my uh, initial inclination. So as someone who is, you know, has a podcast, does a, a ton of you know content, is a, a thought leader in the space, how do you balance all of the things that investors are are looking to hear or listening to hear, the larger narratives around investing with, you know, your own kind of strategies, right? Because we do hear a lot about storage and mobile home. We have since 2015 because of how they performed through, you know, the Great Recession. COVID is a very different animal than the Great Recession, but you still see a lot of that narrative. And so how do you piece through that as you think about, you know, reaching investors and, and getting them to understand your thesis? Man, that's that's such an important question. And it's why I really like working with you guys, because I, I know that you built your business around your own investment theses. It's not a show. It's not for marketing. You actually believe what you say and you invest aligned with what you say. And I see so frequently, you can get a lot of clicks, for example, going on the internet and talking about how bad Bitcoin is. But like, if that's going to be your career, but you're not shorting Bitcoin, like, what are you doing? You're just trying to get clicks. So similarly, you know, I can go and do all my speaking engagements about self-storage, but if it's 10% of my portfolio, like that doesn't align with what's going on. So I try to be very transparent about what I'm actually investing in. And I'd say that 90% of my investments are done through a SIM or our deals. And I know that you guys are sympathetic to that, which I, I really like. So, you know, from a big picture perspective, I'd say that about 60% of my investment portfolio is in mobile home parks and self-storage. Probably 10% is in retail. 10% uh, is in a startup, Thrive Market. I was an investor in that company and still am. And oh, actually Madre Mezcal, which by the way, go, if you're into Mezcal, which I know not everyone is, Go get a bottle of that. That's like the best mess. That's why I invested. The product is incredible. My team is awesome. So that'll probably give you a good understanding. I am very much interested in, and we just put out a deal in the ATM business, which I'm sure as soon as I say that, people probably 30% will click off of this podcast just because it's like, do you not know what PayPal is? But it's a very interesting play because the ATM business caters to unbanked and underbanked population. And so what happens during recessions is that there is a, there's an influx of that population. Not that it's needed, but it's an interesting dynamic where if you have a low credit score and you have a $600 net worth, with the way the tides are blowing, it's very important as investors to kind of weigh headwinds versus tailwinds. And yes, the technology risk is legitimate, but those technologies require bank accounts. You know, credit cards, Venmo, PayPal, et cetera, they link to your bank account. So when I look at the banking regulations that are causing business models to be changed from making money by lending, which is what banks used to do, with the interest rates the way they are, Bank of America, for example, less than half of their income is now derived by lending money. It's all derived by fees. And so those fees are really crushing and crippling for low balance clients who have to pay 10 bucks to have a bank account every single month. Again, if you have a $600 a month, $600 net worth, you can't pay that. So it creates all this demand for the ATM business. So anyway, those are kind of my concepts and how the portfolio works. And that's always going to be the thesis. I just, there's very difficult for me to debunk the recession resistant thesis, but the percentages will change. As an example, grocer anchored retail is a narrative that I've always talked about. I think it's really interesting, but this is a 
it's very hard to even get a loan for a retail center, regardless of who the tenant base is. So that percentage will change over time. Yeah, I mean, the, the world is changing, right? And and you can't be right 100% of the time. And you and I have talked about this, you know, ad nauseum, you know, we were looking at, you know, build to suit, you know, uh, like basically gyms, fitness centers that, you know, seemed interesting at the time. And thank goodness, you know, we ended up passing on those, you know, given COVID, you got to apply, you know, your strategy, but timing is also important as well. And, and one of the things that I think is particularly important for, you know, the busy working professional, which, you know, we all were before we kind of moved into these, these, these roles is just this uh, idea that there's stuff happening. And if you are forward thinking and, and thoughtful and you read a lot and you talk to smart people, you're able to come up with, you know, investment strategies that, that just make sense. You know, that the ATM investment on its surface never really made a ton of sense to me for all the reasons you just mentioned. But as you take this deeper dive, you peel back the onion layer by layer, you realize, well, maybe now's the perfect time. And because no one else is thinking about this, or there are the magnitude of people that are thinking about this is much smaller, that's where my opportunity is created. And, and COVID, I think, has caused people to ask the question more frequently, you know, where is the opportunity going forward? And so I'd love to hear know what you think over the next one, two, three years, you know, where are the opportunities going to pop up? Yeah. So I, I don't want to be like a broken record, but kind of like I mentioned, the thesis really is not subject to the changes of the market, even in wildly ahistoric manners. It's just about the percentages of allocation. One thing that I will say that I think COVID is going to create though, is an opportunity for pricing arbitrage in the distressed debt space because that's something that really hasn't been in play. Not that distressed debt isn't always interesting. It's just that the amount of question marks surrounding foreclosure moratoriums, for example, those question marks create an opportunity for pricing arbitrage. There's fear in the marketplace. And for the most part, you know, there's not a lot of fear in multifamily apartments right now. doesn't mean there's not great deals to be had. But if you're looking for those unique COVID type of plays, we are very interested in the distressed debt space, both in commercial and in residential. Yeah, that's uh, it's uh, really interesting that that you say that about the about the this trust debt. I think I just read that somebody's raising a six hundred and fifty million dollar fund to buy uh, hotel debt, like to buy hotel assets, like in preparation for what they expect to be, you know, a big a big jump in travel again. Which I, I know we all. I know the three of us, like we love to travel and like, you know, everyone to, to various degrees is kind of like itching to travel. It's like in our nature to do. And so people are already lining up and preparing for this as most, you know, very savvy investors do. They're, they're preparing ahead of time where they see the opportunities going. So yeah, I'm not surprised to hear you, to hear you say that at all about the distress stat as well. Can I add one more? But, yeah, for sure. Is something that people are talking about. You know, senior living is just a really fascinating space generally. I'm sure, yeah. you know, again, looking at the tailwinds versus the headwinds, it's very compelling. The demographics create a big margin of error so that if you make a mistake, there's a significant tailwind to that investment regardless of the operating efficiencies. Now, of course, it just so happens it's one of the most complicated assets in the world. So you have to really know what you're doing and identify quality operating partners. But with COVID now, there's an additional question mark there because 
in the world of senior living, the assets are typically smaller than what we may be interested in. And in, let's say multifamily mm -hmm. apartments, I really start to feel comfortable at 150 units where if 10 tenants move out, you're not really worried about it. And likely the investors would not experience a change in cash flow if that happened with senior living because the operating expense ratios are typically somewhere in the range of 70%, which is like 50% higher than multifamily apartments, and you have smaller assets, let's say 50 to 100 units, if 10 tenants pass away, because they typically are not moving out, that can create some challenges from a cash flow standpoint. But again, it's not just me and you two that know that, right? It's, it's really common to understand that dynamic, which means, again, there's a, an opportunity for pricing arbitrage. And... I really like that industry. I'm just super, super cautious about who we're willing to work with in that asset class. Yeah, senior housing is actually where Alpha got its start, you know, informally before, you know, we, we kind of technically started the, the company. And, and part of the really interesting components of the space is that the ownership is very fragmented. You know, you see a ton of mom and pop or single asset owners. And for a group like us that, wants to work on acquisitions, it presents this really compelling buying opportunity. I, I always tell the story. I was at a conference, an IMN conference on senior housing a couple of years ago when you know people still met in, in person at these things. And I was on a panel and I said, out of all, all the senior housing sponsors in this room, how many of you uh, work on acquisitions as, as opposed to new construction? And three out of about 200 people raised their hand Two of them were on their first deals and the third was someone who, you know, we had been working with, you know, for 15, 16 deals already. Right. And it just goes to show like the operational intensity eliminates a lot of folks from that space. And that's where opportunities get created. And it, it's an asset class we absolutely love. So it's 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 encouraging to hear you feel similarly. Yeah, I completely agree. But it's it's immature for lack of a better term. So in 2012, when I would get in a room of 30 accredited investors and give the pitch of a lifetime, the results would be less than stellar. And if you've read my book about raising capital, you can know what I'm talking about. You can't do much worse than raising $0. Okay. So that's what I would do on a regular basis. Now, the issue with senior living though, is that the industry hasn't yet given you those institutional players to rely on. Like Dan mentioned, if you want to participate in the space and you want to focus on acquisitions, if you're going to IMN conferences to try to identify those partners, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be a room full of people that would likely not be a good fit. So you have to really, really try to create those relationships. And we've spent a lot of time doing everything from cold calling to and accepting you know, inbound requests, which is two things we would never do in any other asset class. And still, we've only done one deal that we thought was a great fit with the right partner. So, you know, it's quite challenging. And by the way, it was a, a, a word of mouth kind of referral that ended up happening after all that hard work. It didn't really prove anything. Yeah. So, so Hunter, like speaking of conferences and networking, you know, you host your own conference about real estate investing. And so since we, you know, we want to share more resources and education with, you know, with our network, with our listeners, let's spend some time um, talking about your conference because it is coming up January 28th, 2021. So, you know, what got you, what got you started in doing a conference and, you know, why has it been so like such an important vehicle for growth? I know every time like I go to conferences, especially I'll say it this way. 
it's a smaller conference yours, which I loved. I get so much more out of a smaller conference than this, you know, big, these big giant ones. And so I really appreciated, I really appreciated it. And so I don't say it as like, it's like derogatory because it's small. I actually think it's fantastic because it's smaller. So, you know, I love the opportunity to meet people in person and, you know, learn from them because we learn so much just in like having these different conversations. So, you know, tell us about your conference, tell us what people would learn and why they would benefit from, you know, from joining you. Uh, yeah, this I appreciate January. that. Yeah. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. So this is something that three years ago was really borderline in terms of would it be even economically viable? And that's to create an event that was focused on passive investors. The question was, would a passive investor pay $500 to come to LA and get a hotel room and learn about passive investing? The whole point is that they don't want to be active. But what we've seen is just an incredible tsunami of interest in this world. You know, even in the last three years, but particularly over the last, you know, eight or so with the change of the Jobs Act. And I think that is only going to continue. You know, sometimes we can get in our echo chambers and think that everyone's a multifamily operator and works in Texas or something like that. And nothing can be further from the truth. You know, you look at the macroeconomic picture where the bond market is like $14 trillion of negative interest rate bonds. So that's a more realistic approach to which way the tides are blowing. There's a glut of capital searching for yield, not great multifamily value add deals in Austin. So having said all that, to answer a lot of those questions, you know, we want to create a situation where we're putting a lot of the sponsors we work with together, some very savvy passive investors and create panels about things like economics and regulatory hurdles and uh, tailwinds versus headwinds on various asset classes and deep dives into various niches. And it's the Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference. We're doing it online this year, and it's available at iirec2021.com. And you'll probably recognize some names uh, that have you know popularized in the speaking world of real estate, but there's also probably a lot of names that you've never heard of that are very influential people in this space. Jason Post is a guy that comes to mind. You know, they've got about a billion and a half million, you know, billion and a half dollars of multifamily assets. But unless you're in the world of real estate, you probably aren't familiar with who they are, but they're, you know, movers and shakers in the industry. And so we want people that are super polished, that have their narrative and their kind of predetermined points to really communicate effectively. But you also want people that aren't professional speakers that are really giving you inside industry secrets that you may not be able to get otherwise. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, like you said, like the passive investor that doesn't want to like spend money to, to, to make us money. But passive investing is also not that simple. It's not just sit back and make your money. Like there's there's so much more to it. Like you were saying before too, like you can oversimplify something to get clicks, you know, and also it's just like the way our attention span works, you know, just the way we're conditioned to, to surface read. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on that have really like messed with the way that we operate and behave and, and perceive, which is like a whole other topic. But I think it's important to talk about like passive investing isn't just, I'm going to make an investment and, and, and sit back and never have to spend money on something and never have to spend time on something like to understand what you're investing in before giving over your money requires a lot of upfront work. Definitely. And, you know, we wanted to be in a position where we could kind of have our investors defer to our due diligence process. 
So, you know, our firm is positioned similar to Alpha in the sense that we pull our investor base together and invest in institutional partners or joint venture with those institutional partners or quasi-institutional partners in some cases. But at the same time, the reason that I created a company is that there's a level of due diligence that is prudent to do, but it's almost economically unviable. So if I'm a passive investor and I'm investing $100,000, I think intuitively you would want to go see the properties, visit the headquarters of the asset managers, go to multiple states and see what the teams look like across state lines and such, but it's just not viable. You can't spend a hundred hours on due diligence and $3,000 flying around the country before you invest. So we want to create a streamlined environment so that, you know, you can come to LA or in this case, do it virtually and learn in two or three days, a big high level overview that you can then use for the rest of the year. And it's funny that you mentioned it's not a, a large conference. That's correct. It's, you know, we'll probably have 300 attendees this year as opposed to those that have 3000, but it's probably the number one or number two passive investor conference in the country. <laughs> and maybe the number two would be best ever. Number one would be best ever, which kind of has a focus on both. And I love those guys. They do great stuff over there. But the point is there's so much room in the space to create quality content because the investors we're catering to may be more advanced or sophisticated than those who are just simply looking to place $100,000 and not worry about the rest. So that's what we decided to focus on. Yeah, that, that's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. And, you know, with it being virtual too, with a smaller, with a smaller group, there's just so much more time for networking and like getting to know people, which is, you know, which is really important. Like you said, like even with your sponsors and this is the same for us, like we, you know, we'll evaluate inbound of course, but all the sponsors that we work with have all been referred, recommended or met by one of us in person. And then you know, we proceeded with like our diligencing and, and everything like that. So, you know, it's like being able to build those connections because that's also a really important part of all of this is getting to know somebody that you might want to invest with and like being able to, you know, to see them, meet them, understand them, trust them, you know, get like a get feeling about them because that's a really important piece of it too for the passive investor is you're not just looking at a bottom line number. You still have to feel comfortable in the deal and in who's operating that deal or who's syndicating that deal because that that person, you're going to have at least a five-year relationship, sometimes more depending. So getting getting to know them, understanding them, understanding the strategy, the philosophy, the background, it's all really important. So again, I think it's another really great reason to attend conferences is to to also be able to build these relationships. Totally agree. Yeah, it's really hard to to accept inbound leads. It's hard to imagine a scenario where that would come up. And for listeners that are kind of thinking about the way it works, it's like, we're always looking for new sponsors, but like, I'm always looking for a new best friend as well. As in the sense <laughs> of like, I've got a couple of best friends and like, it would have to be a wild coincidence. But it's funny, you know, one of the, one of my favorite people that I've met over the last 10 years, I met at a real estate conference and it was, I mean, he had been a listener of the podcast for a long time. We actually had some mutual friends. He walked right up to me and said, like, here are three things I know about you and three people that I know. Like, are we going to be best friends? And we ended up, we are. Like, he was just over here for dinner recently. And the same kind of thing has actually happened with one of our sponsors, where they reached out and they had listened to our show for quite some time. They checked all the boxes. They ended up being a sponsor of our conference. And through that experience, I got to know them quite well. Like I said, we haven't done a deal with them yet, but I think it's really a really potential that we may do a deal with them in the next six or 12 months. And that would be 
totally cool and um, kind of speaks to the caliber of the type of people that attend some of these events, which, by the way, let me make a comment about that. This event is like 500 bucks online. And so some people go, well, why would it be $500 when it's super scalable? You can have a thousand people attend. It's not going to cost you any different. The real difference is the networking. You want people to come that are curated so that that experience is super quality. I have another conference or a summit that's coming up that's free. And the networking component is not a big value add. It's just that we're getting a ton of people in the room that want to learn the same stuff. But with IREC, the networking is huge. In real estate, relationships are so important. And everyone knows that. But I think, you know, with the fintech crowdfunding movement, you know, 2012 onward, it's gotten lost a little bit that at some level, you really need to trust the people that you're investing with. Because real estate deals are unique. They're marketed based on forward-looking projections that can very easily be manipulated. And if you're an unsophisticated investor, you know, you're a, a perfect target for someone who says, I want to raise capital and I'm going to do it by showing you a great return. And so the ability to actually get in front of someone, meet them in person, you know, create a relationship with them, that's always meant the world to us in, in terms of our vision for long-term sustainable growth. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And actually, for the listeners, Dan was a guest on our show recently. So I hope you can link to that in the show notes page, because I think he did an excellent job of kind of discussing this topic. So much so that the person that I mentioned previously about one of my favorite people I met, he texted me afterwards and was like, is Dan your like older, smarter brother? (laughs) Because this is like a really important topic that we've talked about before, which is that we founded this company because I saw what was taking place in the crowdfunding model and realize that this may destroy this industry that I love so much. You know, you're taking all the great things about incentive alignment, relationship building, and you're basically creating a VC funded version of Craigslist for real estate. And that's a story that we all know how that ends, where all the compensation is based on upfront fees. There's no performance incentive and there's no co-invest. You know, I'm usually one of the largest co-investors or in largest investors of each of our deals. So not only is my compensation overwhelmingly weighted to the performance of the assets, I usually have more to stand, especially on a proportional basis, than most of our investors. So all of a sudden, all of my intricacies in my personality and what kind of mood I'm in and what I'm going through in my personal life, that's inconsequential. All you got to do is do what I think is the best thing to do based on the incentive alignment structure. And it, then all of a sudden, we don't do a lot of deals. We do deals that we're really confident can perform. And I know you guys are sympathetic to that as well, but you know, I've seen what, what some of these larger firms have done and it can be really impressive and incredible, but at the same time, it's likely not necessary there. I don't need to go too far down this rabbit hole, but this is a really exciting business that works a hundred percent of the time if you don't blow it once. So to incur a bunch of VC funding, to incur a bunch of debt, to try to scale to the moon quickly is not necessary to really provide incredible returns to your investor base, which is what this is supposed to be all about. So that's the way we're structured. Yeah, we we're structured the same way and very much, you know, very much aligned on that, on that as well. So thanks for, you know, thanks for elucidating on that. Cause we do t- touch on it here and there. Cause sometimes people ask like, are you crowdfunding? Like, no, we're not crowdfunding. Like here's why. And, and this venture backed concept is like the number one reason why, because there's a dangerous or a very dangerous element there that can compromise your underwriting because 
where's your alignment if you have to do deals and you and you have to put them out there and you have to scale well that by its very nature means that you might be putting out deals that aren't the best risk adjusted deals they're not you know they're they don't have everybody's best interest at heart because you're being pushed to scale in this way so it's a really important topic i'm really glad that you that you brought it up so last question, and this is something that we, we ask everybody who comes on the podcast as you know, it's called real wealth, real health. And we always like to ask you, what does real wealth mean to you? Like, how do you define and live the concept of wealth? So if this was like a computer game where you have like characters, you get to pick your characters and like each one has little strengths and weaknesses. And like, you can see the bar going up with like the flexibility and like agility and like speed. My like freedom one is just smashed all the way forward and maybe other things aren't as high. So like, my whole thing is I want to live a self-directed life. And so everything is kind of subject to that. Now, sometimes that can be, you know, like financial wealth is like paramount to my view of being able to live a, a self-directed life. But you could see a situation. I mean, the VC funding example where I would be unwilling to incur VC funded just because I think that self-directed life would probably be limited. So maybe that does limit the potential for how lucrative something can be. So that's the one thing. I would also say that a lot of real estate entrepreneurs get into this business because you can create this sense of passive income, which is which is true. And you know, I'm an investor in 35 deals syndications that my taxes are, are quite challenging to do, but I get distributions all the time from things that don't require my day-to-day -day interaction. It's like an infomercial. If you aren't familiar with this kind of model, it's pretty incredible. But at the same time, the concept is you can get all this passive income so you can go to Mexico for a month and nobody cares. But nobody I know that's successful is in Mexico ever, right? We're all working 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week trying to do great things for our investors and put ourselves in a great position. So the same kind of thing with me. You know, I, I launched the summit recently. We have this conference coming up. We just launched our first deal of 2020 recently. And I kind of overworked myself, but, and I actually haven't talked about this publicly, but my wife's like number one goal in life just got granted to her last night as cumulatively as a family because we booked a, a three night stay in a hotel called Amon in uh, Jackson Hole. So this is like our dream vision. Can we get to stay in one night in an Amman hotel? And all the hard work that I put in results us be able to stay this hotel. And just that's kind of the dynamic uh, with, with what that means. It's very necessary for me to go to Jackson Hole and sit and look at a fire so that I can come back and kind of focus on the grind. So both are important. I love that. I love that you shared that. Thank you for sharing that. And that's what it is, right? Like you, that's like you granted her like a lifelong wish and, and like how, like that just makes, I'm sure like you can, I can see because of looking at you, like how happy that makes you that, that that's something that, that you can do. So to provide um, some extra context, the way this was kind of communicated was <laughs> last night. I said, we have an important family meeting. I made her stand up and then I proposed it to her, like gone on one knee and said, like, will you come with me to Amman in Jackson Hole? And she said, yes. And so now we're going. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. Well, and like, what a better way, like to just close out 2020 and, you know, and, and get ready for, for 2021. I'm sure you like a lot, a lot of us in the real estate space are really looking at it from 
a perspective of like new opportunities. There's going to be so much innovation that's going to come forward, be, you know, because of the way that we're adapting. And as investors, we are also adapting to the way we as consumers are adapting to life as it changes. And, and to me, real estate is one of the most interesting industries this way because we we see it firsthand and there's a lot of creativity in the real estate industry. I find with, you'll see a lot of things being repositioned, a lot of innovation around a building that is not really considered necessarily innovative, but it's the people behind the buildings that are coming in and saying, okay, how are we living these days? And that's like, that's a really important place to be because we see so many things happening from the ground, literally like from the ground. And I don't know, do you want to just touch on what you think, you know, 2021 and like, this is beyond like, you know, investment opportunities, but, you know, we've been granted this, this amazing time because of the crisis. Our last, our last guest, Al Osborne said, never waste a good crisis. And so, you know, what do you, what do you think in 2021, how is real estate going to change? Like, how are we as investors needing to stay like really awake and open and aware of these new opportunities? Well, I mean, I have two answers for that. Number one, I didn't suffer some of the challenges that were associated with 2008, but I know that that was the moment that people will be talking about for the rest of their career for a lot of people in the sense of how did you act when things are actually challenging? What took place back then? When you're underwriting a sponsor, for example, I'm sure one of the questions you ask is, were you around 2008? What happened? Did you deal with any foreclosures? Did anyone sue you? Blah, blah, blah. These, this, so this is the moment right now. This is the moment for the next decade or several that we'll be talking about how we acted, both from a professional standpoint and from a personal standpoint. So, I mean, especially given the title of this podcast, and the challenges surrounding COVID with the lockdowns, working out is so important. Like figuring out how to either A, build a home gym or B, like get get something going like in your community where you have a place to work out either outside or otherwise is just absolutely critical. We've talked a lot about real estate, so I'll talk just briefly about this. The combination of like cardio and weights is just such a magical combination. And if it's been a while since you've been in a workout and you've thought like, am I going to survive this? It's a really powerful thing, like to gas your central nervous system, to get under heavy squats, to pick something really heavy off the ground with deadlifts or otherwise, put yourself in a flight or fight kind of scenario, but also especially training heavy, everything else all of a sudden starts working, right? So you have a mood boost, you have your diet is required, you feel like you're looking at food like it's nutrition and as opposed to just snacking for whatever reason, and all of a sudden you start sleeping more and then all of a sudden your productivity shoots to the roof. So like we have to be razor sharp and it's really unfortunate that gyms have been kind of closed down with the combination of you know the depression and the stuff around addiction, but with the COVID stuff, man, it's just really unfortunate, but you can redline yourself for free just go run. Right. And that is just, there's a reason people are so obsessed with this and the cardio high and the runners high and all this stuff. So get out there and redline yourself once a week and see if it doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> That's great advice. Yeah. The, the, the staying, it's also a mental thing, right? Like it stays, you know, our physical fitness is so much tied to 
like our mental well-being as well. So yeah, that that's that's some great advice. Well, Hunter, we're at the end of our time together. It's been such a great conversation. Really, really appreciated um, having you on and hearing your story and you know all the great advice and insights that, that you've given us. So thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, I really appreciate it, guys. Cool. Hunter, that was awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.